This is Power Players with Dan Clark. This is a podcast interview with former Miss America entrepreneur and corporate executive Charlene Wells. Welcome to Power Players with Dan Clark, former athlete, Hall of Fame speaker, New York Times bestselling author, and high-performance business coach, where each week I bring you an inspiring message from an extraordinary human being who will share their secrets on how you can tap into your personal power to become everything you were born to be. Thanks for spending some time with me today. In this episode, my longtime friend Charlene Wells, first foreign-born bilingual Miss America, first woman reporter hired at ESPN, parlayed into an Emmy-nominated 20-year career, who joined Story Rock Electronic Publishing, producing historical records for military personnel, shares her understanding of distinction and how to differentiate yourself from the crowd. Most significant to me is that Charlene also served our country as the U.S. Department of Defense appointee on women in the military and worked in the Pentagon as the Director of Communications for the DOD Office of Personnel. You definitely want to tune into this episode as Charlene Wells gives us the inside glimpse into the extraordinary art of relationship management. So welcome to Power Players and I've had so many guests. I don't know what number episode this is right now, but, and I don't know how many actual Miss America pageants we can log and, <laughs> and, and, and Google at this moment. But in 1985, a amazing human being um, kind of catapulted into the international limelight as someone who has remained true to who she has always been. And in my experience, you know, speaking in 73 countries to 6,000 audiences, I've met every celebrity you can imagine. And tongue-in-cheek, people have said, Clark, do you think money would change you? And I'm like, I hope so. <laughs> and we meet people who, you know, if they're, if, if, if they're a jerk when they're poor, they're still a jerk when they're wealthy. And... You meet someone who has been true to her beliefs, true to her values, true to herself um, throughout thick and thin, through, throughout the greatest fame that anyone could even dream of having to unselfishly serving our military and our families and doing special things for the young mothers and their daughters to bring them to the Miss America pageant. She didn't have to do that. To travel to the downrange combat zones and taking other Miss America um, uh, winners with her to just uplift the spirits of our of our most vulnerable military heroes to do all these behind the scene things that no one ever hears about obviously if you are curious at all and you have a Utah tie with the Miss America from 1985 you'll know that today's guest this episode is an interview with the one and only Miss Charlene Wells and I I welcome you to this program, but I get emotional because our parents were dear friends yeah. who have since passed yeah. away. And her dad being an international banker, one of the smartest people you will ever meet, and yet one of the most compassionate spiritual friends that anyone could ever dream of. And his his partner in crime, his mother, I mean his wife and, and Charlene's mother, dear friends of my parents. And to just know your background and why you became the young woman that you are still today. <laughs> it's just an awesome to take all of you on this emotional and intellectual financial roller coaster ride with one of my heroes, <laughs> one of my longtime friends, Charlene Wells. How are you? Oh, Dan, talk about an intro. We go way, way back, decades, decades yeah. with you and your family. And it's just an honor to be here with you. You are such an amazing human being. And all the good that you've done in the world and the, the stories so that you've connected, the people that you have connected. And I've learned a lot from you. So thank thanks you. for having yeah. me. Yeah, Mutual admiration. <laughs> so I want to ask the questions that everybody wants to know. Oh, so if they Google you, if they, if they <laughs> look up Wikipedia yeah. and we all know it's hard for us to update our Wikipedia. Well, stuff, they won't so let you. I know. And you don't have to do Isn't that. Isn't that the craziest thing? But I want to take everybody <laughs> back to you being born your dad being an international mm -hmm. banker. So you were born 
in Paraguay. Asunción, Paraguay. I know, mm-hmm. and, which makes you the first bilingual Miss America. Foreign-born. Foreign-born yep. bilingual Miss America in the history, and there might not ever be another. There was, there's another bilingual. She speaks oh. Russian because her parents are from Russia. Isn't that interesting? I know, but, but I'm the only foreign-born. And so because of your dad's um, amazing influence in the world, you had a chance to also live in Ecuador and in Mexico and in Argentina. And Argentina, you mm-hmm. spent your teenage years in Buenos Aires. I sure did. I loved that. I went to an American high school with such incredible diversity. I mean, I had friends from all over the world, and I thought that was normal. So when I moved to Utah, and most of my friends had never even been out of Utah, that was a little bit of a culture shock. And what age were you when you moved to Utah? I was 17. Okay, so now that's exciting because <laughs> did you go to East High for one year? No, I went to Skyline. Oh, my Trent. I went to Skyline. My kids went to Skyline. I went to East High, and but I thought, oh, I had a But my brother and sister, well, let's see, my, my older siblings all went to East. Absolutely. Yeah, and they loved it. So, And I had always grown up thinking I was going to go to East, but I came back, and we lived with Skyline. So there. one of the greatest stories, we go back so far, one of the greatest <laughs> stories that I want you to tell, first-person narrative is that the very first Miss America pageant that you ever saw was the one you were in. <laughs> take us crazy? back. Take us back to your youth. Oh, you were I, never a pageant no. chick. You were never a pageant girl. You no. just so talk to us. T- talk yeah, to us. Yeah, I never grew up watching it. It was just not a thing. It wasn't something we tuned into. It was an accident that I kind of got into that world. I was I was heading into my senior year, and I got recruited. I was at Girl State. If you're familiar, well, you're familiar with Girl State, right? And I had just uh, won the Girls Nation Senator election. And so I was speaking. But anyway, the head of the Utah Junior Miss uh, program, she came up to me. It's a scholarship program just for seniors in high school. And she suggested that I enter the Utah Junior Miss program. Lots of scholarship. So I did. I eventually earned about 15000 in cash scholarship. Cash scholarship is amazing. It pays for books and room and tuition, room and board and everything. So... Um, I was 19, and my mom saw an ad for Miss Salt Lake Valley and with the Miss America program. And she said, you know, you should be in this. And I went, oh, they got a swimsuit. I'm not doing that. <laughs> and uh, But then she did a little more research and found out that in Utah, Utah was the only state where we did not have swimsuit on stage. The only state. So it was just a you know private judging process. And I went, okay, I can do that. And, and then, you know, you win that, and then you have to go back to nationals where it's on national television. <laughs> you go, oops. <laughs> so it was an, an unexpected um, process of getting there. So in the Miss America pageant, they have talent. Yeah. When did you start playing the piano? When did you start singing? Since I was very young. My mom was a concert pianist, yes. as you know, a brilliant pianist. And uh, so it was just something we just grew up doing. And I was always scared to death to perform on the piano, though. I was scared to death. I wanted to be a piano performance major at BYU. I took one lesson, realized I have to practice five hours, and I went, oh, no, that's not what I'm doing. Plus the fact that it was just such a scary thing for me to perform piano. But I found out that if I was singing and playing the piano, I could do that. And it didn't scare me to death. And so that's what I started started doing. And then when I was... About 13, I started learning how to play the Paraguayan harp. I had gone to Paraguay with my dad because I hadn't been there since I was six months old. We had left early. So I went there, fell in love with the Paraguayan harp. It's just a beautiful, exotic sound. And so I started learning there in Argentina, in Buenos Aires, and got pretty good. So as I was trying to figure out what do I do for my talent um, in the Utah Junior Miss program, and that was, I think, about 30% talent, um, I decided, you know, differentiation is a big deal. And that's Absolutely. when I learned my first lesson about the power of differentiation. I could play piano like a hundred other people, or I could play the Paraguayan harp and be the only one. So I decided to choose the harp and I won the national talent of the America's Junior Absolutely. Miss. So that's the one that I used when I went into Miss Utah and added, added singing I'd never really thought of myself as a major singer because I'm an alto. Low altos don't really see ourselves as soloists. That's right. (laughs) Differentiation. So you know, it's always sexy voice. Yeah, (laughs) it's always the sopranos that have the big leads. You know, the big Broadway shows. So anyway, that was um, that was an interesting opportunity to perform. So I really did during that year. I did a lot of singing and playing the piano because I couldn't really take my harp with me everywhere. Mm -hmm. But um, on the actual show I did the playing the Paraguayan harp and singing in Spanish so when you google it and you see it it's almost one of those things where you go huh 
Exactly. What is she doing? Exactly. And what is that? <laughs> what is it? It's kind of like George Harrison from the Beatles when he learned how to play the sitar. It was kind of a new thing out and <laughs> exactly. made you different. Yeah. So then take us from Miss Utah, which qualified you and invited you to the Miss America National Pageant. Tell us about that week. What, what goes on at the Miss America Pageant? Ooh, at Miss America. So at that time, we only had a week. Now I think they have, they have a couple different opportunities. I think it's two weeks. You get some opportunity to get to know people. So we had a very limited time, but it was only a week, and it was just really crammed. And I was heading back in a very interesting time. You probably remember that the previous Miss America, Vanessa Williams, who is supremely talented and, and beautiful, there had been a huge scandal. She, you know, Some pictures had shown up in Penthouse magazine that she had been part of. So she resigned. Her first runner-up took over. So that put a huge global spotlight on Miss America. I had no idea until I got there and saw hundreds of members of the press from all over the world. I mean, every country I could think of was there. And I had prepared myself to talk to the press, but guess what? Nobody wanted to talk to me. I was from Utah. Who wins from Utah? So um, every single day, I would see the press room filled with interviews happening. I got an interview with somebody from Provo. So that was, yay, I got an interview. But I remember um, there was a tall, beautiful black girl standing by the side. I hadn't met her yet, so I went over and introduced myself. Turns out she was Miss Minnesota. And uh, we started talking, and I said, have you been interviewed yet? And she says, no, have you? And I said, no. And so we sat there like two little wallflowers. She was my third runner-up. And oh Lauren Green, she's, oh a, she's a network oh news. Yeah. yeah, I know. Yeah, she's awesome. So it, it was one of those things where I, I – kind of realized, I don't think I'm getting noticed. And you know what? That's okay. I'm here to do my best and have fun. And that was my only expectation. I actually feel really bad for those who were there with extremely high expectations on them. Miss Texas, Miss Oklahoma, you know, the usuals, Mississippi, Miss Ohio had huge expectations. They were always in the paper. Miss Kentucky, I think, was the oh, one that yes. was voted to be number to, to be Miss America. So I was really under the radar. <laughs> but at the same time, you realize that it wasn't worth being noticed for the wrong things. Right. <laughs> if you just waited your turn and your time, mm -hmm. you'd be noticed for the right things. It's better mm -hmm. to be uh, to be respected for a lifetime than to be popular for the moment. Absolutely. So take us to that. Take us to the inside of Charlene Wells. What what thoughts did you go through? Did you, were you ever tempted to just compromise, or did you stay true to who you were and the core values on which you were raised, waiting for somebody to ask you the tough question? Were you prepared or were you just like, eh, I'm just going to be me and whatever they ask me, I'll just talk? You know, it, at, as I look back on it, it was a lot easier than I thought it would be. I had prepared quite a bit because I was ex expecting questions about my religious faith. I was expecting a lot of those kinds of questions. And I didn't Conservative, get them. You were, you were very vocal about the re-election of Ronald Reagan, <laughs> who's one of my favorites. Isn't he great? Isn't that great? Oh but you gosh. stood out because of that. You differentiated and, yourself by saying, wait a minute. And I didn't make it a big deal. Yeah. I didn't stand on a soapbox. I just answered questions. And when they asked me silly questions, I mean, I got some, there was a question in London, and I couldn't treat it like it was silly, right? You can't. You have to respect the reporter. Oh, that was such a good question, right? But but in my mind, I'm like, oh my gosh, what a dumb question. But I got this question on Good Morning Britain or something like that, you know, about, um, oh, I understand that you baptize dead people, you know, as part of <laughs> your religious faith. Here I am on exactly. television. I don't remember exactly what I said, but I remember chuckling and just say, you know, we, we believe in eternal families. <laughs> and no, there's no baptizing of dead people physically. I love it. You know, and I just had to just kind of move on. Or when they asked about morality issues, you know, you just kind of have to laugh about it. And this is, this is what I do. And this is who I am. And that's okay. So with the, uh, with the influx and the attention put on the law of attraction. You know, Bob Proctor, dear friend, God rest his soul, he was in the secret, and he was the one that really illuminated the law of attraction, but he mystified it and complicated it. And bottom line, it's we don't attract who we want, we attract who we are. And there's a real energy mm -hmm. and a vibration transference, frequency of vibration, mm -hmm. as we know, from person to person. And in that law of attraction, were you ever... Were you ever bombarded by people who wanted to be your friend or wanted you to, to 
invite them into your circle, but there just was, it was like oil and water. There was mm-hmm. no connection. Oh, almost my entire life. Yeah. And, and you learn how to create a bubble. And, and I think I remember you saying um, about how you identify the thoroughbreds. Oh, yeah. You of know, our generation. Of your generation. Oh, yeah. That's great. Yeah, and that's remember. exactly right. And, and you want to stay by them because mm-hmm. they're going to teach you. Yes. I want to be with people who will teach me yes. and who will help me be the, a better version of myself. Absolutely. Not drag me down. Absolutely. Right? And, and nobody deserves to be with anybody who drags you down for any reason at all. I love it. Right? I, I agree. Right. So yeah. in the law of attraction, what they say now is that the, the number one chemical energy or vibration that attracts people to one another, we, we all think it's love or service or trust it's authenticity oh yes i love that word so back to the pageant world how many times do we laugh tongue-in-cheek where the contestant is asked a question and you know they've memorized the answer they're not they're (laughs) not present in the moment they're not being authentically real in their answer i just want world peace (laughs) or some of the other miscongeniality i know or 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 some of the other fiasco realities that have happened with people we know personally right (laughs) But you were just being authentically you. It didn't matter the question that was asked of you. It yeah. didn't matter if the bright light was in your eyes. You just were true to your soul, true to your belief, true to your core values, true to yourself. Yeah. And that authenticity is maybe why you won Miss America. You know, of over the course of that year especially, I had to look back and kind of ask myself, so why did I win? Because lots of people asked me, why did you win? Because you were so <laughs> pure or whatever. And I'm like, hey... All those other young ladies back there were amazing. So don't say that I'm, I won because of that. You know, They were all really great, great people. So I had to look back and I, I thought, okay, differentiation. I think you're right, authenticity. They asked me a question I didn't know. And I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. Just brilliant. <laughs> you know, I said, could you explain a little bit more? <laughs> and so he did. It was this complex question, but but then, so he explained a little bit more. Well, um, in fact, I can't even remember the word, but he says, um, I want to know what's your favorite book that has something to do with good versus evil? Because I, I, I love books, I love reading, and but he had said something to this day, I still can't remember the word, but I was like, I haven't heard that word before, please tell me more. And, and so then, I, oh, okay, Dante's Inferno. I had just read that, so I started talking about that one. But I was, I was, I, I don't know about that hard question. <laughs> and then there was another question that I got asked um, that really stumped me. And it was, it was this, the judge that just said, do you think you're pretty? That's it. I mean, he just said that. So you're on, you're in the spotlight, you're in a chair with judges all around you, you know, the, the cameras are on. What do you say? You're at the Miss America pageant. What are you going to say? Uh, so I said, I'm comfortable in my appearance. I love it. Okay. He didn't stop. He said, uh, now tell me, do you think you're pretty? And I said, well, my mom thinks I am. (laughs) I was just like, deflection 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 but you know if you if you say anything other than i'm okay you know then it's like you're not being authentic because you're at the miss america pageant right, right. so so he get, goes comes back to me the third time and he goes are you pretty i was so uncomfortable i go um okay yes <laughs> and he goes what's the difference between being confident and being cocky so then we got into a little conversation about so. confidence versus cocky. And there is a big difference. And, you know, we see it in the selfies that, that happen in, on social media everywhere. I can look at all the, if I see somebody with selfies every day showing us how gorgeous they are, they got a problem. Absolutely. They got a big Absolutely. problem. That's all I see is I got a big problem. Absolutely. I totally agree. <laughs> So how did you get comfortable in your skin? Because at the Miss America pageant, as you know, I was a judge of the Miss USA pageant. Oh, that's right. Oh, so so was I. I got to do that too. Miss USA. USA and Miss America. So Miss USA has no um, 
Compet- I mean, no, no performing uh, talent, talent. No talent. No performing talent. Although they but, are very talented. But a lot of <laughs> a lot of influence, a lot of emphasis, almost equal point value on the in, on the uh, interview. Oh, it's phenomenal. And the questions I asked, every one of them started crying, and I wasn't trying to be a jerk. I was just trying to milk out what their authenticity. I, I can't even remember, <laughs> but I don't really want to go there. But how did you suddenly become comfortable in your skin to be judged on international television in a bathing suit? Oh, to go out there right. as one of the five finalists and get that question that everyone else was asked, and to and to find that grace. What most people don't realize is that Charlene was an awesome athlete. <laughs> high school. High school only. She was a great athlete. And so we could always pigeonhole her as a tomboy because she could. Yeah. I mean, you were competitive. You were a great uh-huh. athlete. I'm very competitive. Which with the natural um, muscularity that comes with an athlete. So good for you. Yeah. Our daughters were gymnasts. I was a swimmer. Yeah. Exactly. I was in track and See, field. So we don't have to go into the details. <laughs> But that's the best way to chisel a body, especially as a teenager. I think swimming is, yeah. And so you had all of these athletic tendencies, maybe even that don't, you know, I'm going to punch you if you tell me that one more time kind of an (laughs) attitude. And all of a sudden you you find yourself on the largest stage with all the emphasis on outward appearance because no one was in the interview room. Uh -uh. Take us to that journey, how you rose to the occasion. And as I would describe you charlene uh class sophisticated elegance grace oh thank you performance under pressure i love and admire you so much because of what you've been able to sustain and just maybe the first time that you exposed it to yourself Uh was in front of the world going Uh okay i got this so take us back to the you know now many decades later pre-national television (laughs) what were you going through and how did you prepare yourself physically and emotionally many decades later i look back on that and i go i don't know how i did it because that terrifies me now just to think of that just to think of going on stage (laughs) by myself playing the paraguayan harp by myself 150 million people watching just me because that was the 150 million people watching that year course I didn't know those numbers but I just knew that there were 22,000 people there live (laughs) and so um, as I think about it now I remember when that I am more comfortable in front of thousands of people I don't know why and I am less comfortable performing for five people I get more nervous for five people and there's something about being on a stage with a spotlight on you and you can't see anything Absolutely, I agree. so you feel alone <laughs> it's like okay i'm just by myself i'm in yep. my living room i'm playing my harp <laughs> i'm just singing and and i was able to get myself through okay this is just a minute and a half but during my when you watch the paraguayan harp performance during that performance i actually had a brain freeze and i had no idea what i was doing next but my muscle memory kicked in. My fingers kept going. I and I'm like, it. oh, please, what's next? What's next? <laughs> I have no idea. What are the words that I'm going to say? I don't know. And that's terrifying. And that's happened to me over the years, you know, where there's this moment where I don't know, you know, live TV comes oh, on. Yeah. And what was my first word? Ah, I don't know. Um, but that, that was something that I learned over the years. And as I look back on that, oh, my gosh, that was a scary time. Now, we didn't do questions my year. Oh, you did not. If we had had to do questions, I would not have won. Yes, I would have, have totally bombed no, it. Your authenticity. <laughs> but I would, would have, have had that big gulp in my throat. I wouldn't have any. Oh, I just, if we'd had that. <laughs> no, I, I, I disagree. Your authenticity, authenticity <laughs> came through. So in, in sports, we know that momentum is only as good as your next play. Mm-hmm. And I quote this all the time. I played football for 13 years, and I was appalled when I first sat in the stands and realized how stupid the fans are. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because to our conversation, not every football play is designed to score a touchdown. Mm-hmm. This play sets up to this play, which sets up the play, which now <laughs> allows that running back or that receiver to break, you know, for that 60-yard yeah. scamper to, to, to score the game-winning touchdown. So let's just reverse engineer. Take, take us through step-by-step monumental steps in your life that took you to the Miss America stage. And then I'm going to follow that up with a question. What did that stage catapult you into as far as a reporter? And I want to get into that okay. part of your life. But let's go back. Um, Just the monumental steps that you think you could actually say, I went here, here, six degrees of separation, whatever right. you want to call them, that got you to that stage. So I am not a natural performer. I'm not even a natural extrovert. I am a high-functioning introvert. 
and I am capable on stage. It's kind of weird. Um, I feel like I'm in the movie Rain Man trying to figure like, out what? what you just said. <laughs> A high-functioning no, introvert. I'm, oh, okay. I'm, okay. <laughs> I um, am able to uh, regain um, my energy by being alone. So I'm in that way, I'm an introvert. Okay, so I don't get it feeding off of everybody else. But I grew up not having a plan being in front of people. That was not ever a plan. That was never, ever part of the plan. My entire life is unplanned. Um, the plan was international business. I was interested in that in high school. Either that or being a, a, an architect, but I can't draw. So that kind of <laughs> fell by the wayside. Um, the only other skill set that I had was playing a piano. But there again, it was a problematic being in front of people. So I, that's where I was like, okay, maybe not that one. Um, I took a broadcasting 101 class at BYU. Mm -hmm. And my teacher had said, if you get an A in this class, I think this is something you could actually do as a profession. And I got an A. So I'm going, oh, somebody thinks that I can be in front of people. That's not something. But, you know, growing up, my parents would make us perform every single time we had guests over. From the time I can remember, I was little. They would have, we had a guest over for dinner, whatever. Oh, you know, Charlene, Elaine, Janet, you know, we need you to play something. Play the harp, play the piano, sing, sing trios. So we were trotted out like little trained monkeys all the time. <laughs> and I hated it. And guess what I did to my kids? Yeah. The Spanish Von Trapp family singers. <laughs> so the whole time I'm down in South America, mm -hmm. all the meetings my dad had, they would always start out with a trio from the Wells Girls. I love it. Or, you know, playing the piano or something. So that helped me get more comfortable. And, and it's just sheer experience, just getting up in front of people. So when I, my kids were little, I started them all when they were five on the piano. Not because I want them to be a piano, you know, concert pianist but because I wanted them to be super comfortable in front of people. I love it. Right? And each of them are. Each of them are very, very good in front of people. They're capable of speaking, performing, whatever, and I that's remember all when I, I wanted. Had, when I taught public speaking down at BYU for four and a half years, I was there when Jessica gave her speech. Jessica. Uh, well, what's, your what's your daughter's oh, name? Oh, which one? Monica? Monica. Jessica. Oh, oh close. Sorry. So How close. How to win friends and influence people. <laughs> Monica gave her I speech. I like that name, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, maybe you'll have another one. There we go. Yeah. Granddaughter. Yeah, Monica. I, I, I'm sorry, Monica. I hope you watch this. Monica or Sarah. They both went to BYU. No, Monica. It would have been Monica. Yeah, she gave okay. her speech. Yeah. Good. Yeah, they're all really good. She was in Young Ambassadors. Oh, yeah, yeah. But each of the kids can get Jessica. up, deliver a speech. They can do great, great things. So I, that's what I wanted was not that they were outperforming, but that they could do that. Um, so I remember growing up with my mom, making sure, if I could point to one thing, it was that my parents made sure that we were playing in front of people, which made me more comfortable being in front of people. The other thing that I think contributed to my entire life was that I learned how to practice well. Um, uh, my mom would yell from the kitchen, you know, don't be sloppy. Don't be, you know, when I'm practicing the piano. That was sloppy. Start all over. But when it came time to perform, even if I messed up, she didn't care. She was like, great job. And I went, I just totally forgot the last page. <laughs> but she would say, great job. What she cared about was practicing well. I love it. So I grew up, I have to practice well, because then when I do, things will kick in. Like when I have my brace, brain freeze, performing on the Miss America stage, my muscle memory kicked in because I practiced so well. So profound. Right? So that's what I cared about was, are my kids practicing well? <laughs> and am I giving them the experience they need to get in front of people? So, so that led to all the other things. Absolutely. <laughs> and then you win Miss America. Did you ever have that, that Robert Redford line, that experience on... Um, in his movie, The Candidate, they ran him for president. He's in the back of the limo. They never thought he was going to win, and now he's at the back, and they say, you're now Mr. President. And he looks at the <laughs> camera and goes, now what? Now what? That's exactly Did the you, feeling. So you're like, and you don't know America, what's next. Charlene Wells. Did you say, yeah, baby? Or, <laughs> oh, no, now what? You Do know, you it's, it's a surreal moment. I remember thinking, my brothers aren't going to believe this. <laughs> <laughs> and then I go over, you know, it's like, okay, I remember that they told us if you win, you got to go over here. And Suzette Charles was the first runner up. She's all of, I think, 5'2". So I had to do this <laughs> to get my crown on, you know, bend way over to get it. And then 
And then there's this massive long runway that you have to go down. And I don't really remember what I was thinking, except I don't know what I'm supposed to do. This wasn't a job that I had expected, because it is a job. It's a public relations job, but I didn't know really how I was supposed to tackle it. I hadn't really thought that far. I just thought, you know, let's get through the performance. Let's get through the interview. And then I was relaxing. (laughs) It's like David Archuleta when he uh, was talked into, he had recovered from vocal paralysis. Oh, right. And, And he was talked into going down and trying out for American Idol, and he didn't even pack a suitcase. He was just going to go uh-uh. down there and fly back. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of your, your story. Yeah. You okay, so you win it. Miss America. It's a full-time job. You're it is. On, on tour. You've given Five cities a week, 250,000 yep. miles a year. And I've spoken in Atlanta, Georgia, for the last 26 years in a row at the National 4-H Congress. They always have the new Miss America. Oh, do they really? Yeah. Good. So I met the last 26. Obviously, nice. I needed to go back to 1985. Uh, <laughs> I don't remember that conference, but, then you, but it's a you, blur. You use that platform. So many fizzle off into the into the sunset. Momentum is only as good as your next play. And you were able to parlay those network connections and your ability, your ability to speak in public, your ability to make love to that mm. camera, if I can use that phraseology, that ability to be charismatic in a lens to become an, an extraordinary ESPN reporter. I remember Kentucky Derby. I remember. Oh, I did that nine years. I yeah. know. I remember yeah. that. I remember so often. Do you often. really? I remember, yeah, I've, I was there one year. In fact, I think I, I, I think I, I reached out to you if you. Oh must yeah, not, yeah. That's must right. not have meant as much to you. Yeah, Monica, <laughs> Jessica, I can't remember. <laughs> but tell us about your favorite experience as a reporter or someone that you met that that just blew your mind that that took you to the next level. As far as a human being, you learn from this interview, you learn from this experience, you saw a horse come from behind, whatever the case may be. Take us back to your world of sports reporting. Um, So first of all, I got to tell you, you oh, I did that a total of 16 years. I did seven years on contract full time with the SBN, with the SBN. And then, yeah. And before that, three years with KSL. So almost 20 years. But um, But you were a sideline reporter at football games. You did sideline for BYU and then seven years with the SBN covering Big Ten football. I did college game day, Kentucky Derby, French Open, America's Cup. Yeah. Um, I would, and then another nine years freelance while I'm raising my kids. It was just too hard with having kids and, yeah. and that. So, but I got to tell you that I did not have Miss America on my resume when I went to meet with ESPN. And here's why. I didn't know how they would interpret that accomplishment, whether they would think it's a plus or a minus. Because I was running into people all year long who thought it was so stupid that I was Miss America, right? It's a pageant. It's... Is our pageants relative? I got all those questions all the time from the snooty reporters. That's why I didn't want to be in broadcast news anymore. Because I thought, if you've got to be like that to be successful, I don't want to be that. So when I came home, I was like, you know, I switched. I wanted. I moved into international relations. And then to graduate, I thought, i got to get back into communications. That's when I thought, I want to get into sports. Because at least, you know, 80% of the time, I can be positive <laughs> You know, I just didn't want to be that news person that had to ask all those hard questions of people, make them uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And anyway, so um, uh, I got a call after three years of being on the sideline with KSL. I got a call uh, from a new New York um, agent who said, I heard about you and I would like to represent you. And I said, well, if you get my job, if you get me a job, <laughs> you can represent me. So he flew me back to New York and I met with ESPN and with ABC. ABC said that I was just too young, which I was, um, and come back later kind of thing. And ESPN wanted to go with me because, you know, the female viewership was rising and ESPN wanted to reflect that on those who were on on air. And so I was the third female to work at ESPN. I love it. So and and going back to your question about uh, a defining moment, one of my favorite um, assignments was World Cup today. I was the host of World Cup today when we had the World Cup soccer 1994 in the U.S. Oh. And as you know, you know, worldwide, World Cup soccer is probably bigger than the Olympics. Not so much here in the States, but in 1994, we had it here in the States, and so it became a big deal, and the U.S. team made it to the World Cup stage. So I got to to host World Cup today, the half-hour highlights program, you know, for a few months leading up to that. And I was following the U.S. team. I got to cover them and do feature oh, reports. Wow. That was so fun. There was a third thing that was, that was really defining for me. Um, I had been asked to go interview 
Diego Maradona, for those who are soccer fans, he was the co-soccer player of the century with Pelé. Argentine, he was, he was phenomenal. Um, I was supposed to interview him. Nobody, or, or he was not accepting any interviews uh, because he was under investigation for drug abuse. So he had said no interviews, period, nothing. So my producer had said, well, I want you to go to the Argentina-Greece game, at least do a stand-up there. It was one of those uh, semifinals that was being held all over the country, so or the, the round robins. Um, so I, I went there, and it was in the afternoon. But previous to that, the night before, I thought, okay, what if I were to get an opportunity to interview him? What would I ask him? So I wrote down all the questions. I translated it into Spanish because I knew he wouldn't want to talk in English if I did have the opportunity. Translated it, committed to memory. Because if, if you get somebody, you're not looking at notes. you got to be talking, right? So um, I committed it to memory. And then the next day I went there, and there were, there were probably 200 members of the press down on the field watching practice. Just Argentina was just kicking the ball around. And um, I, I looked up and down the field, noticed I was the only female. <laughs> So I thought, okay, differentiation again. Um, so I told my cameraman, I said, I'm going to go to the other side of the field. Nobody had said that we could, couldn't go to the far side. Diego was uh, over on this side. But I said, I'm going to go over there, and if he comes near me, come running. So I went to the far side. 20 minutes later, sure enough, he was chasing down a ball, and he was within earshot. So I'm going, Diego, puedo hablar contigo? And he looks at me like, what? And he starts coming over. He's He's curious. So he starts talking, you know, we start talking, and just as I, just as he reaches me, my cameraman reaches me too, and so I just start, I grab the mic and just start asking him questions, every single one of my questions. About three minutes into it, I'm seeing out of the corner of my eye the rest of the press corps running around the edge <laughs> of the soccer field, and, and I didn't let go, I didn't let go, I kept that eye contact, asking him all those questions, got to my last question, which was asking him about, about the drug use, and, uh, and he's you know, stormed off after that. But we ran upstairs. That was the only interview with him during that World Cup. We translated it, you know, got the subtitles on there. And the thing that that taught me as I was wandering the halls of the Pentagon in my, my previous job um, was that, you know, I can talk to anybody. I just have to make sure I am prepped, you know. And preparation is so key to everything, you know, to, to giving you that confidence that you can handle anything. So after that conversation with the world's best soccer player, I'm like, okay, I got this. No matter what it is that I'm doing, I got it. And to differentiate yourself, yeah. <clears throat> one of the greatest, um, I don't want to use that word greatest because that's so sad, one of the worst statements that people make about us from the U.S. are ugly Americans because I know, we're right? so pompous. Yeah. believing that everybody should speak English, and yet you mm. go to a foreign country and they all speak three or four or five languages. They do. They really so do. So talk about differentiation, being bilingual. Yeah, oh, that so helps. fluent in Spanish. I'm sure that's why mm -hmm. you got his attention. That's why uh -huh. it was such an, a, an authentic interview. Oh, yeah. Because you went where he was. You didn't expect him to come to where you were, and that's Absolutely. so profound. We need to point that out. I had so. an interview with Roberto Duran. On the, oh, wow. In the third fight, the third fight was Sugar Ray Leonard. Oh, my goodness. Um, and I interviewed He only would do it in Spanish. So I interviewed him before and after. And it was that interview with him after in Spanish. I got a call from NBC. They wanted to meet with me. And it. they offered me a job. Uh, but it meant that I would be gone from my family all weekend. So I turned that down. Yeah, but that was, that was amazing. It was right after that interview. <laughs> so let's transfer to your love of the military, and that's where you and I connect. I've been yeah. downrange eight times, actually. As Have I've, you really? Just I've twice done for that me. so many times. But yeah. take us into your into your introduction into the military. Did you did you did you choose the military before you started Story uh -uh. Rock? Uh -uh. So let's take us to Story Rock and remember. Uh, yeah. Remember my service. So, um, so what's extraordinary? Which you you heard in the. Uh, in the, in the pre-recorded interview, is that Charlene also went on to not just have her bachelor's degree, but she went on to get her master's degree, which took you to the next level as a business executive. It really did. Which is really, uh, you've been able to parlay that into mm -hmm. amazing opportunities where mm -hmm. you currently sit, and we won't talk about that right now. But let's take us into Story Rock and Remember My Service, because we... We actually communicated and talked quite a bit about yeah. that, so that I was so impressed by the difference you were making Thank in you. the lives of these servicemen and, and women to 
especially the Vietnam War. That was the oh, first connection that you and I had had because yeah. so many folks that I know, heroes of mine, had come back from the Vietnam War with a completely different experience than the Gulf War. And you were able to tap into that lack of of, of honor, that lack right. of appreciation, right. and really bring it alive. Talk to us about Story Rock and okay. especially your division. Remember my Thank service. Thank you. Yes. So, you know, as I as I was thinking about getting back into the workforce, my youngest was in school all day. Um, I Previous to that, I had gone to the U to get my master's in organizational communications. It took me five years to do that because I did one class a semester, but it really mattered to me. And so I started working at Story Rock, which at the time was focused on schools, high schools, having electronic yearbooks. And um, very soon after I got there, I realized uh, we had been asked by the 96th Regional Readiness Command at, the Fort, at Fort Douglas to help them document their story, help them tell their story to the 9,000 soldiers part of that um, Army Reserve Command. And so our first, we were just a technology company. So our reaction was to give them our software, which was very user-friendly. They came back to us and they said, you know, we don't even have the manpower to do this. Can we outsource to you? So given my many years of television experience, I looked around our team and I knew that we had the right people to do it. And I said, sure, we can do it. We'll do it in-house. And so we created an entire program. And of course, we have this, um, our awesome CEO, John Lund, that um, really faci facilitated this and allowed us to be able to grow this. So we, we started doing projects um, here in Utah, Utah National Guard, to help them document, tell their story, whether it was a unit deployment or it was a historical time frame, like we did the 100 years of the Army Reserve at, with the 96th Regional Readiness Command. And that grew from there. We, we worked with the Ohio National Guard, and then we got a contract with the National Guard Bureau, and, and it just kept growing, working with military units in the Navy and the Air Force and Marine Corps. Um, our biggest one, um, the first big one that we had with the Department of Defense was the Korean War 60th commemoration. I, I still have that hardcover and, book in Oh, my home. it's turned out so well. We did a full, uh, you know, coffee table commemorative book on the Korean War, and and we did a feature documentary that, that ended up in the GI Film Festival, we followed that up with almost simultaneously the Vietnam 50th Absolutely. commemorative book and documentary and the Desert Storm 25th book and documentary. And with all three of these, we worked with every single Veterans Affairs office in all 50 states oh to distribute gosh. these books to these veterans of those particular wars. And as you mentioned before, the Vietnam veterans, you're right, that was a whole different experience. They got a double whammy. Not only did they serve you know, in theater, serve in a very terrible war, but then they came home to a country who didn't care. And, and, and that was almost worse. I mean, I interviewed so many Vietnam veterans that just said, oh, I just wanted to go back to Vietnam because it was so miserable. They would fly back here and, and they would be told, before you land, change into civilian clothes. Absolutely. We don't want anybody to know you served. So guess what that does to them? The rest of their life, hide that service. You know, our, our, our uh, fellow um, service members in the following decades didn't experience that. Exactly. You know, coming home from Desert Storm, they were treated as heroes. Vietnam veterans didn't get that at all. So now when you meet a Vietnam veteran, you say thank you and welcome home. And maybe even buy them a book. Yeah, yeah. Because that brought closure. I remember being really in the did. Chicago O'Hara Airport, and they had the, the giant, larger-than-life uh, leader of the famous... Um, uh, bagpipe band. It's an honorary band. They perform in Washington, D.C. You know, oh, yeah? The guy's about 6'8", and then you put the huge hat oh, on. Oh, gosh. You know? <laughs> but they were playing, and it got all of our attention way, obviously, pre-COVID. Uh, yeah. pre and I remember standing there next to this long-haired guy, Vietnam vet. He had an army jacket on with some of the badges and some of the the uh, the insignias that, that declared he was a Vietnam vet, and he was just standing there. And the doors opened. It was an American Airlines concourse. And all these troops were coming back from Desert Storm. Oh, so this wow. was 1991, mm -hmm. the, the first war. And I remember him standing there and just watching wow. how they were greeted and the honor and the celebratory environment uh -huh. that that band had created. And one of the first soldiers off the plane, they were all Army guys, walked up to him and gave him this big hug. Good. And everybody okay. kind of backed off. Yeah. Kind of in a reverent way as they hugged for probably 60 seconds yeah and your book does that for these folks Thank i've you. seen it i've witnessed that i've actually given away probably 10 oh good of the korean books oh now. good uh, yeah. yeah 
It does. So let me drive the BMW that I partially paid for. <laughs> Good. Okay, so let's talk. Let's, so now you're exposed to this service before self mentality, this oh, yeah. amazing culture of the military that you and I both just love and admire. Mm-hmm. And then from there, you were invited to actually work in the Pentagon and then receive an appointment by the Secretary of Defense to especially work on the Committee for Women in the Armed Forces, mm-hmm. amalgamate both of those experiences, both of those assignments, and teach us what, yeah. what you were doing. So in 2015, from 2015 to 2019, I was appointed to the uh, Defense Advisory Committee for Women in the Services, DECOWITS. It sounds like a sausage, uh, but, you know, uh, those military acronyms, <laughs> you love them. Um, and that one came at a very um, – unusual time in the military. It was the year before the combat exclusion policy was being lifted. So that entire year, we are getting briefed by each of the services on what they're doing to prepare for that. The Marine Corps was not wanting to be part of that at all. They refused to brief us. They were just kicking and screaming. But what's interesting, I just love the Marine Corps. January 1st, 2016, they did such an about face. And they were like, okay, this is the new rule. All right, we're going to lead out. (laughs) And they were amazing. You know, when I saw that difference, they started just really taking a lead on that, on what they could, how they could change their culture. And so um, it was really interesting to see. I got to go down to Fort Stewart, Georgia, and um, we went to uh, see a a, a brigade, a Bradley Brigade, um, Light Armored Brigade. And they had several crews with women in there because now women were part of the armored and infantry and artillery. And, uh, there was this, this, this old guy who was a trainer and he came over to me, he was going to sh- introduce us to the crew. He had a stopwatch in his hand and he said, I got to tell you, I did not like the idea of having women <laughs> in my crews. I got to tell you that. And I'm like, okay, where's this going? And he says, but I have to come, I have to show you something. And so he brought us to one over to one of the Bradleys and, and he, there was a couple of women that were working on this, gun they were going to take it out and I wish I could tell you exactly what kind of gun but it was a really big heavy one (laughs) and and he says I'm going to time these girls and he says uh, these girls these these young women um and he said they are my fastest ever and he says on the battlefield this matters if you can take apart a gun and you can clean it out and you can put it back that's what matters and he says they are my fastest I said, oh my gosh, that's so cool. So anyway, we got to just see and witness and be part of a lot of changes. Uh, One of the things that I really worked on, because I was one of two civilians that that were on that, and they specifically brought me on there to provide some marketing eyeballs, um, especially on the communication side of things, the messaging side of things, including imagery. And I went through all the websites for the military, the, the dot mill the .gov, the .coms. I went through all of the sites for each of the services. I counted every single photo and categorized it. Is it, a, is it showing gender? Is it showing a traditional or a non-traditional role? Anyway, I got through there and I discovered that it was not showing women in any non-traditional roles. It was behind a desk. It was in a kitchen. It was, you know, just so, all sorts of things. And it was not showing a good percentage. And so our research team really dived in and it was, because of that, you know, we were able to make some recommendations as Secretary of Defense, and they dove in and made a whole lot of changes with Good imagery, especially. Because you got, you know, young women need to see what they can be. And we do have female fighter pilots, you know. We should, we should see record, that. For the I'm good friends with several. There you go. Yep. Uh, Nicole Malakowski, she was the first uh-huh. uh, Thunderbird. She's a dear friend. Very cool. I've had her on the podcast, and Heather okay. Penny, a lot of them. And what they will tell you is exactly what you said. Yeah. In a man's world, they had to be better. Oh, yeah. And they took pride oh, yeah. in that. And what was cool about Nicole Malakowski, in the military, they have, at, at, in the Air Force, they have a, a slang term called the snacko. And what happens is he or she is usually the lowest ranking or the newest member of the squadron. And their responsibility is to keep the refrigerator stocked right. with snacks <laughs> and soft drinks and beer or whatever the case yeah. may be. Yeah. And she was the snacko. <laughs> and yet in her squadron of F-16, she was an F-15 driver at the time, in her squadron of F-15 drivers, she was the first one promoted and the first woman made a Thunderbird pilot in the demonstration team. Yeah, she's amazing. And to her credit, every single one of her guys just kind of went, yeah, mm-hmm. of course she is. Oh, no yeah. surprises. She's better than we are. She's at least as oh, good. Yeah. 
So and you probably I, just, I take so much pride in these women <laughs> and their stories of, oh yeah. oh yeah, watch us, and then they exceed and excel, oh, which yeah. push us, and together we rise. So during that time, the question came up: um, Is this a social agenda for the military? And is it about quotas? And not even close. First of all, every single woman you talk to would run as fast as they could away from quotas. They did not want any kind of quotas. Um, but second, this was a talent pool issue. When you look at less than 1% of Americans that serve in the military, why are we cutting out 50% of the available talent pool just because of their gender? You got it. Especially now that things have changed. We're not carrying 75-pound radios anymore, right? Things have changed. So that made them start looking at the standards that hadn't been looked at for years Absolutely. since technology has changed everything. So when they started going, oh, no, they're going to change the standards, I hope they're changing the standards to be more in line with, with what is needed for that exactly. occupation. So let me tell. So that's okay, what they were go. doing. So two, two, two experiences come to mind. What you just taught the world in our day and age in the politically correctness world in which we fight against racism, fight against sexism, and welcome anything we possibly can to equal the field of diversity, equity, and mm -hmm. inclusion. I think, without putting words in your mouth, what you just said was, when you, when you climb into a cockpit, you can be male, female, Doesn't black, matter. brown, or white, wealthy, or poor, <laughs> and the jet does not <laughs> the care. The jet doesn't care. <laughs> So I'm the right. first. I'm the first keynote speaker at the. I'm the keynote speaker at the first ever women's military symposium in Washington D.C. Oh, good. So I walk in. I'm the only guy there. <laughs> Three thousand women in military uniform. Talk about a side. <laughs> Holy cow! And one of my dearest friends, three-star Air Force General Maggie Woodward. She's the first female uh, combatant commander in the history of our, our wars, in the history of our military. She was in charge of the Libyan campaign. She's brilliant, she's amazing. And I've spoken for her all over the world. And so I decided to highlight her in front of all of her compadres, all of her, all of her peers. And I made the biggest mistake. I stand up in front of everyone, I said, I honor you, but may I just publicly state that my dear friend, Maggie Woodward, uh, is the finest female general officer in the entire uh -oh. military and she stands up and interrupts my speech uh -oh. Charlene. she says danny and i'm like oh no here we go oh, no. she says i'm not a female general <laughs> officer i'm a general officer that happens right. to be a female right, right. and don't you ever forget Good it for and i'm I like and i've never right. forgotten that to no. your point yeah it's the it's the talent pool it's are you talent. qualified are right. you trained to do it yeah. And in our experience, may I compliment you one other thing from my experience as a professional speaker all these years. I think you've realized this, but I want to go on air to make sure everybody <laughs> knows that I know it. <laughs> a man can be a role model to a man, but a woman can be a role model to both a man and a woman because you can get men to do things that other men can't get us to do. That's really? why I'm a champion Ooh. of women in business. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I've watched you. I've stalked you from a distance to just see what you've done with your platforms, what you've done with your, your networking, what you've done with your career, and how you've positioned yourself true to you, true to yourself. You know, Bob and, and Mom are proudly looking down on you in heaven. Man, she's made it so far. Well, they're not in heaven. Oh, I thought one of them passed nope. away. Both of them oh, are here. Yeah, see, my mom, they're 94, 91. See, my mom's 93, and I, oh, I'm so grateful. I know, right? It's good. It's good. Oh, my gosh. I know. They're, it's really fun to be able to report to them. Oh, I love it. Tell, <laughs> tell them Ruby Clark and dances. I, I mean, will. But, I will. But let's just take us to the current as we wind down. Um, you've, you've been the MC of many galas. I've been in attendance. I've been on the program with you many times as a speaker. And so you've used your platform and your articulation to the highest degree. And then all of a sudden you've kind of settled in in the private sector to be that spokesperson, that face of major companies. And I know most companies would salivate to have you on their, on their, on their roster. We know that. Oh, thank you. And so you've settled in, and we don't need to make this a commercial message. I've spoken for Mountain America nine times. Great. And That's what I've heard but before they, I got there. Yeah. But they... Are you saying you would never hire me again because oh. you're finally here? This is going wrong. After nine I know, times, I know. let's go for a 10. Let's see if you can get it right. <laughs> but I'm intrigued by, by what you do now in the corporate arena 
and what your job entails because as part of your formal introduction, you have perfected the art and science of relationship management. <laughs> you have at the friendship level. I mean, I see you in the lobby before we came in for the interview and I haven't seen you physically for a long time and we just start where we left off. We've always, we've always had this chemistry. You've always just been a dear friend. So, so teach us, just give us the inside scoop of what you believe the art and science of relationship management is. How do you create them? How do you sustain them? How do you keep them at the forefront of every business? Because I think that's your job Mm -hmm. to make sure everybody knows this is the product, this is the service, but people first. Right. Well, this is the first time that I'm working in a company in an industry that's not male dominated. Even though, I mean, because ESPN, you know, sports casting, military, very male-dominated. So now, you know, at Mountain America, really the, the primary reason I joined, not only is it, you know, a great product, great mission, which I, has to be there for me. I've got to be able to be passionate about it. But the culture. Absolutely. The culture is phenomenal. Is Sterling still there? Sterling is, one he was favorite. the number one reason. Oh, yeah. Because I knew Sterling. Beings. Yeah. And, and he had, I had first met him when they supported the Utah National Guard project for Absolutely. us. That's how I first met them. And, you know, just the authenticity, you go there and it's authentic culture. It's not made up. It's not just so that it sounds good on a website, you know, it really is there. In fact, one of my first senior leadership meetings, I remember after a few minutes thinking, I think they're disagreeing, but they're disagreeing so agreeably. I can't <laughs> quite tell, <laughs> you know, and it's been like that. For the last, I've been there now eight months. Uh, but when, but when you talk about relationships, um, as I was going through, you know, post pandemic is when, or not post pre pandemic, pre pandemic. You know, I was really enjoying working at Story Rock and the Remember My Service production. The pandemic hit that really affected our funding, our, our ability to do things. And and a friend of mine reached out and said, you know, could I send your resume to the White House? So that's how I got back to the Pentagon. Um, back there. And so then there's been a few transitions. And now you know, with a new president, then I had to transition out of that one because my job was, a, my, my uh, boss was a political appointee. So I decided to come back to Utah. But as I was looking at my resume, trying to figure out what I'm doing next, I look at my resume and I go, this is a weird background, <laughs> weird resume. What is it that I do? So I had to sit back and really take a good, almost a third party look at what I do. And as I looked at my entire career, it came down to two things that what I can do. Because, I mean, it's weird. It's ESPN. It's military. It's just all over the place. And what I do is tell the story and build relationships. It's that simple. And if you can do those two things, you can work in any industry. Right? So that's what I'm telling my kids. Just if you can write and speak and if you can... Be nice to people yeah. <laughs> and build friendships, you know, with people forgive that you me, work Monica, with. Forgive me, Monica. Forgive me, Monica. Forgive me, Monica. How to win friends and influence people. <laughs> She's already forgiven you, I'm yes. sure. I love it. <laughs> so it really comes down to that. Any kind of industry you can be in, if you can do that. What a great place to, to conclude. So let's draw a closure. If you had one hour to live, what would you say to somebody? Now, what would you do? Most people say, oh, I'd fish more. Or I'd spend more time with the family. I don't want to know what you would do. What would you say if you had one hour to live? What would I say? Um, first, how much I love my family. You know, so it would be all about it would all be about family and and obviously close friends. Um, I would say that um, I believe in them and I'm proud of them because I don't think they hear it enough. But you know, and as much as it's just coming from mom or whatever, it still matters. It really matters. Um, and I don't know. What kind of lessons would I teach them? I would say keep keep playing music, keep writing, stay together, <laughs> you know, keep those relationships up. It's interesting as my kids get older. They're all very different. Absolutely. So, you know, we have to keep reminding them it's like a tree that grows off in different directions, but the roots stay the same. I love it. You know, and and blood really is thick, and, and I want, so for me it would be all about my kids and making sure that they know they are loved and that they are precious and that I'm proud of them in all of their life choices because there have been some hard ones. There have oh, been yeah. some hard things that they've had to go through, and... So in all their life choices, life is an adventure, isn't it? Absolutely. The good, the bad, 
So I would hope that they would remember, remember that no matter how bad things get, they can, oh, there will always be another side. I love it. There's always a storm after, I mean, there's always a rainbow yeah. after every storm and every there storm There really ends. is. And uh, the more storms you go through, the more you realize that. Uh, the first storms, when you're young, you go, it's never going to end. <laughs> instead of running away from the water, you learn to dance in the rain. Yeah. That's what you've done. That's exactly Good right. So let's tie a little bow around this. Of all the things in Charlene Wells' bio and all of her experiences, I think the thing she needs to be most proud of is that she really is Miss America. Because if you think about what America epitomizes, on September 11th, when those 19 terrorists uh, hijacked the planes and attacked our country, they didn't attack America. They didn't didn't try to overthrow a government or capture a landmass. They attacked what we believe in. They attacked our core values, our ideals. America was, ba- was was founded on an ideal, on a set of core values. And that's why I think Miss America means something completely different now, having had you on the podcast. Aww. Because you're the poster child for what we believe. And if everybody believed what you believed and stuck stuck close to, to what they believe, I think that's what's going to heal America and take us out of this craziness. So at the time of this interview, which we've been trying to get together for so long, oh, I know, and finally right? it's now. I don't believe in coincidence. I think today was the day because you are Miss America. Coming from you, that means a ton. And thank you very, very much. So that's all, folks. <laughs> The views and opinions expressed on the Power Players podcast do not necessarily reflect those of KUTV or Sinclair Broadcast Group.